1897, Virginia O'Hanlon wrote to the editor of the New York Sun, and her letter was simple. Dear editor, I'm eight years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Santa Claus. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Santa Claus? And Francis P. Church, one of the paper's editors, replied, Church was reputed to be a hardened cynic and atheist. He had witnessed great suffering during the Civil War, and he saw a nation filled with a little hope and faith. But his editorial, Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus, became the most reprinted editorial in any newspaper in the English language. We live in an age where hope and faith are in short supply. Skepticism reigns. Many people don't believe unless they see, and even then, doubt abounds. It's the kind of world Jesus entered. The kind of world desperately needing a Savior. Jesus opened the door to the future. In fact, his death and resurrection marked God's future entering our present. Christmas marks the beginning of Jesus entering our space. But we're hardly ready to receive him. Our hearts and lives get so caught up in the clamor for Christmas consumption. The season of Advent gives us four weeks to prepare our hearts and lives, not only for the celebration of Jesus' first coming, but more importantly, to make us ready for his return. During this year's Advent season, we'll be hearing from the Apostle Paul's letters to Titus and Timothy about what the appearance of Jesus means. As we refresh our understanding of Jesus and his appearance, we'll also be called to refresh our lives for his return. Then we just might be ready to celebrate Christmas in a spirit that God intends. So this year, we will say without any doubt, Yes, Virginia, there is a Jesus Christ. We begin today with a reading from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15. Titus chapter 2. But before we hear from God's word, let's pray together. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light now in the time of this mortal life in which your Son, Jesus Christ, came to visit us in great humility. That in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to the life immortal. Through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Titus chapter 2. You must teach what's in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanders or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. 
Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled and everything set them uh, an example by doing what's good in your teaching Show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. 20-year-old Hunter Shamet lost his wallet. Well, actually, he didn't lose it. He left his wallet on the airplane when he attended his sister's wedding. His ID, his debit card, as well as $60 cash and a signed paycheck were all inside. Hunter figured that he'd never get it back. He certainly didn't think he'd get it back with interest. But he did. A man found Hunter's wallet, saw that he was just a kid. I mean, the man knew what it was like to be 20 years old once. So he sent the wallet to Hunter with a note. Hunter found this on a frontier flight from Omaha to Denver, wedged between the seat and the wall, thought you might want it back. All the best. P.S. I rounded your cash up to an even $100 so you could celebrate getting your wallet back. Have fun. One day God's grace appeared. Jesus' birth signals the arrival of God's grace on earth. We thought we'd lost everything. And the grace of God came right into our living rooms, our waiting rooms, our offices, our classrooms. Jesus is God's show and tell of grace. He brings us God's grace with interest. For the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. It's grace because God didn't wait until we were ready to receive. Jesus came while we were still sinners. It's grace because God saved us when we couldn't even think about or begin to save ourselves. It's grace because it transforms our lives. Grace, the generous power and love of God, came right into our neighborhood. Grace comes freely to save us from sin. Not because of any effort of our own. We're saved simply by God's work on our behalf. Teacher and author Louis Smees once noted that grace works against the grain of common sense. Common sense tells us that our lives are so completely wrong we couldn't possibly meet God's holiness standards. But, says Smeeds, pardoning grace tells you that it's all right in spite of so much in you that is wrong. Common sense reveals that a realistic appraisal shows our weakness. We're way too human to become better. 
Grace gives you the power to send you on your way to being a better person. Common sense points out the rut of futility that is your life. Grace promises that you can trust God to have a better tomorrow for you than the day that you've made for yourself. One day, God shows up in the middle of our crisis to offer us grace. God covers us with His love. God covers us with His kindness when we are so desperate. In 2015, two people entered a conference center in San Bernardino. The County Department of Public Health was holding some training, and these two people entered with guns blazing. Fourteen people were killed. One of the people who died was Shannon Johnson. Denise Perza, even though she was shot, escaped death. She was sitting next to Shannon Johnson. When the bullets started flying, they huddled together under a table using a chair as a shield. And Shannon wrapped his left arm around Denise to hold her close. Amid all that chaos, Denise remembers the last three words Shannon uttered. I got you. God's grace comes to us when God reaches out and wraps us in salvation we could never earn. God says, I got you. Paul writes, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. God and Jesus Christ holds us close, even though sin is raging all around us, raging against us. God forgives us and offers us life. One of our What Does Jesus Birth Mean to Me Advent writers put it like this. Something is disturbing in this life, and that's the sense that something's not right. This suffering and evil seeps into life inside and out. Some folks I know of don't buy the Jesus story because of this dark side of life. But for me... It's part of why I believe in Jesus. God in the person of Jesus is unlike any other God. He enters the mess of this world to be with us in it and to help free us from it. This is a message not only for us, it's a message for the whole world. Paul is clear. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. The amazing grace of God extends to all people. No one's excluded from God's grace because of gender or age or social class. We know the kind of darkness that's all around us. Races are pitted against each other. There's unresolved native stuff that should burden our souls. War rages against Muslims and Jews and Christians take sides. Animosity rules in too many encounters between Christian evangelicals and their gay brothers and sisters. And God's grace searches into the furthest cul-de-sac of Ripon. God's grace wants exposure on the darkest streets of Stockton. God's grace is good news for all people. That's what the angels said when they announced Jesus' birth to the shepherds. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Sinners like us. Sinners like all people, changed by the advent of God.
Anyone can be changed, transformed, saved. The grace of God that has appeared is amazing. But the grace we have now is only a taste. God's future has touched our present. But one day we will enter God's grace-filled future. Or as Paul says, we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. If Jesus brought the glory of God's grace once, imagine the glory of God's grace Jesus will bring when He returns. The season of Advent recognizes that we are a people who live in between. We live between two horizons. On the one hand, this is a season to anticipate a celebration of what has happened. On December 25, we will celebrate Jesus' birth. In many Christian churches, Advent emphasizes songs of longing as an anticipation for Christmas. Like the people of Israel who waited thousands of years for the Messiah's arrival. We wait. We wait so that we will heighten our yearning in order to celebrate Jesus' arrival. On the other hand, Advent is also a time when we look forward to the second coming of Jesus. Advent reminds us that we are waiting the grand finale The time is coming when God will strike up the orchestra to play the closing bars of the symphony of this world as we know it. Our world waits on tiptoe. We hold our breath in anticipation of Christ's return. Pastor and author Frederick Buechner once described Advent waiting like this. The house lights go off and the footlights come on. Even the chattiest stop chattering as they wait in darkness for the curtain to rise. In the orchestra pit, the violin bows are poised. The conductor has raised his baton. In the silence of a midwinter dusk, there is far off in the deeps of it somewhere a sound so faint that for all you can tell, it may be the only, only the sound of the silence itself. You hold your breath to listen. The extraordinary thing that's about to happen is matched only by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. Withheld breath anticipation, we await the arrival of the one who will set all things right. Advent reminds us of our weight. Advent reminds us that Jesus is coming back. We wait for the appearing of the glory of Jesus Christ. Of course, waiting is one of the more difficult things any of us does. We generally don't like to wait. We don't like standing in line. We don't like being behind an accelerator-challenged driver when the light turns green. Of course, these are easy things for us to wait for. Some waiting is more difficult, more serious. 
There's the waiting of a single person to see if God has marriage for him or her. There's the waiting of a childless couple who wants to start a family, but days and weeks and months pass with no answer to their prayers. There's a waiting of those who want meaningful work, but it doesn't happen. There's a waiting of a spouse in a hurtful marriage with no change in sight. There's the waiting of families gathered around the bedside of a dying parent. Louis Meads puts it like this, Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. Waiting is an essential ingredient in our hope. Advent is a gift of the church year that reminds us that what's coming will be worth our wait. Advent anticipates God's glory bursting through. We wait patiently, expectantly, on tiptoe, because Jesus will return with something greater than we can ever imagine. I will gather all nations and peoples together, and they will see my glory. I will send messengers to the nations, to all the lands beyond the sea that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will bring them to my holy mountain. All humanity will come to worship me from week to week and from month to month. Waiting for such a a glorious day calls us to trust. We must believe that God will bring that day. Believe the glory of God will fill the whole earth and will fill every nation. We must believe that the glory of God will touch our lives then, even as God gives us hope for that day now. We wait with patience and in trust for God's glory and grace that will appear when Jesus returns. And in the meantime, we make known the grace and glory of God. Our lives allow others to catch a glimpse of God's grace. Paul points out, the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait. It's by our behavior that others will catch sight of God's grace, the grace that has appeared and the glory that we await. Our job, according to the Apostle Paul, is to make God attractive to the world. We spend our lives keeping the rhythms of God's grace moving. Paul says we're to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Self-controlled lives are sober lives. To be self-controlled is the opposite of being drunk or entering the frenzy of Christmas shopping. Drunken people resemble irrational animals more than human beings. God designed us to be kind and generous. 
Drunks think only of themselves. They're not interested in anybody else. Upright lives are just lives. When we recognize what God grace is me- that God grace is meant to, to turn the world right side up, then we can't stand by to watch injustice happen. Jesus already began the work of setting the world right, and that's what the word righteous means. Not self-righteous, but a life devoted to doing the right things. And godly lives are devout lives. Now, that doesn't mean having a long face and no fun. True devotion doesn't look like you've swallowed a lemon. True, it is difficult. It's difficult for us to learn to pray. And there are times you'll see it on someone's face, how difficult it is for them to pray. You'll find it strange. It shows up. But as you grow, as your devoutness increases, you will put everyone else at ease. You will pray and live in a way that realizes that God's grace has come and is longing for the return of God's grace in Jesus. See, all of this is to note that we're more than free from sin. We're free to live for God. And so we lean with all our weight, body and soul on the grace of God. We focus our lives on Jesus Christ. Another one of our What Does Jesus Birth to Me Advent letter writers wrote, Sharing this marvelous story with others brings new meaning to so many lives. The Christmas story of Christ's life and His defeat of death give me new hope each day. Because of that hope, I live a life of gratitude and joy each day, not just at Christmas. Our faith is is more than cosmetics. We don't just decorate our lives for a season. Rather, says Paul, we will in every way make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. We show how connected we are to Jesus. In fact, we don't even do this individually. Paul points out that it's a communal endeavor. Paul doesn't exempt anyone from this self-controlled, upright, and godly life. Paul has a word for each of us. He tells older men, be worthy of respect. Receiving respect isn't automatic. You earn it. You earn respect by being examples of faith, love, and hope. I think of my grandfather, a gentle, devout believer. I wish he was still alive so I could spend more time looking into his life seeing who he was as a devout believer in Jesus Christ. Paul tells older women to be reverent in talk and behavior. Paul's saying, watch your tongue. No ear-burning gossip. No harsh put-downs. Rather, spend time in love, nurturing instruction on how to be kind. And to young men and women, Paul encourages a way of mutual love. Give life to each other in a way that gives the gospel a good image. Don't make fun of others. Don't put down or bully others just because they aren't like you. Don't think that you are the king of the court. There's plenty of other players on the field. Advent is a season when we can ask ourselves, 
does my life show the world that God is a God of grace? Does my life build up God's reputation? If each of us lives the grace and glory of Christ, then no one will have a bad word to say about Christ and maybe not even Christians. Paul's words to Titus remind us that we are living in middle time. We live between Jesus' birth and Jesus' coming again. We live in the grace that has appeared And we live for the glorious grace that will come. And always, always we live so that the world can tell by our behavior that God is a God of generous power and love. That God is a God of grace. Let's pray together. Faithful God, we wait for you to come. We know that you will because you already have and because you promised to return. While we wait, send your spirit so that we may grow in grace. Help us to live your grace now as we witnessed it in the life of Christ so that we will be ready to receive your grace later when Christ returns in glory. Prepare us for your coming, Lord. Amen.